I'm watching this really dreadful show on Netflix, or Prime, or Disney Plus, or, or some streaming service, I'm not sure. And to be accurate, my wife Jen is watching the show while I work. It's called The Trust, and it's all the things that make a reality show a reality show without any of the things that make a reality show interesting. Like, most reality shows have alliances and then people get voted off by other people at the end of episodes, and it's all centered around some theme. Like they're trying to cook good food, or they're racing from Moosini to Kamloops, or they have to design the best monster costume. For this show, the alliances and the voting are the premise. There's some money, and the more people who get voted off, the more money the rest make. I don't really know much more. I'm experiencing it out of the corner of my eye while I read the Canadian Alliance on Mental Illness and Mental Health report card on Canada's mental health and substance use performance. By the way, we're doing really badly. But the trust plays like a really terrible psychology experiment in trust designed by a student who's never paid attention in any of their classes. The whole thing appears to be based around the notion that some people can be trusted and others can't on an island, I think. My name is Eric Bohm and I'm the communications person at the Canadian Psychological Association and this is Mindful. This is Psychology Month. The episodes of Mindful you hear in February are going to be all about our Psychology Month theme, which this year is climate change. The CPA's environmental section has created a working group to discuss the ways psychology can respond to climate change, and they've been kind enough to let me sit in on those discussions. I was particularly struck by one topic of discussion, and that's the one I want to focus on to begin Psychology Month. Trust. Most of us, People have an innate belief that other people are self-serving, that they can't be trusted to do what's best for all of humanity because their self-interest outweighs the common goals we all have. But despite what terrible reality shows would have you believe, this isn't really the case. So let's learn more about trust with the psychologist who brought it up in our environmental discussion group and piqued my interest. I'm uh, Catherine Arbuthnot. I am Professor Emeritus from Campion College at the University of Regina. I studied a whole variety of things. I'm afraid I was a bit of a jack of all trades in psychology throughout my working career. But for the last couple of decades, I've been studying environmental psychology particularly the health benefits of connection with and spending time in nature. Terrific. Yes. And uh, that's something that, you know, we've talked about a fair amount the last uh, couple of years, this idea that just being in nature changes the way that you look at the world around you and the environmental impact that you yourself have and so on. But today I want to talk with you about trust and this idea that, uh, you brought this up. We were speaking a little while ago and you brought this up and I found it very fascinating. This idea that people seem to believe others are less trustworthy than in reality they actually are. And that this, in a lot of ways, informs the way that we look at our own actions when it comes to climate change and those of other people as well. And I'm hoping that you can just uh, give me a brief overview of what we were talking about the last time. Why is this not true? And what what is the perception versus the reality here? Well, the, the perception, and we've had it for, gosh, a hundred years or more, is that the essential human nature is selfish, competitive. Uh, our primary motivation is to maximize our own um, interests and resources. 
but decades of research in psychology and behavioral economics and other sorts of things that actually puts people in a situation where they there are shared resources shared with other members of a group and they have to decide how much of those resources to take either to maximize their own self-interest or to maximize the group interest and the consistent results across a whole variety of paradigms and conditions and situations is the majority of participants in those studies will choose to maximize group interests, group well-being. This has been followed up with real-world kind of studies that, and in studies about sort of what's our automatic intuitive response, and it turns out it is to be cooperative and generous, and that in order to maximize our own interests in those situations, we have to exert cognitive effort to suppress those innate, natural, cooperative kinds of moves. So, so the hypothesis, once it was tested, that the essential nature of humans is selfish and uh, self-maximizing, uh, turns out to be false, that, uh, that it's consistently disconfirmed that there are a few, but the majority of people from minimum kind of of two thirds of people up to 80 to 90% of people will choose to be cooperative and maximize group well-being. So Lord of the Flies then was not a data-driven study, but rather a work of pure fiction is what you're saying. That's that's what I'm saying. And in, and in fact, there's uh, some interesting, um, an interesting anecdote that there actually was a real situation where a group of teenage boys got stranded on an island uh, and it took a number of years for them to be found. And they survived very well because they were very cooperative. And that if people started to be selfish or try to take control over the others, they were sent away to a spot to, you know, until they settled down and decided to come back and join the group. So these um, young adolescent boys set up a very cooperative society that was the opposite of Lord of the Flies, and they survived very well. <laughs> I, I have not heard of that study, but that's fantastic. <laughs> uh, I'm glad that there is a real world example uh, of somewhere in the Pacific people doing the right thing. It's <laughs> yeah. I recently read Malcolm Gladwell's new book, and in part of that, there was a study that he's talking about where our intuitive response uh, to other people uh, interpersonally when we connect with other people is to trust what they have to say and to believe them when they tell us something. Uh, mm -hmm. and one of the examples in his book was uh, there was a woman who uh, rose through the ranks of the U.S. Department of Defense, I think, uh, and became the leader of the Cuba unit uh, in that and had been spying for Cuba the entire time, had always been an operative of the government of Cuba. And all the evidence pointed toward her. It was very clear from looking at the data that it was her who was providing these, you know, this information to the Cuban government. But everybody who interviewed her about it and people did actually question her about it were inclined to just believe what she said and move on. And she wrote, continued to rise through the ranks uh, until one person who had, I, 
And the the premise is this one person had an instinctive mistrust of people, which is not the default for most of us Mm -hmm. uh, who managed to finally out her decades later. Is that the same thing that we're talking about here? This idea that most of us intuitively trust other people, but at the same time, if we are asked, say that we don't? Like I'm trying to reconcile those two things. Okay, so so this is where the kind of false belief of uh, human nature comes in. Yes, our intuitive response is to trust other people. But we're also, we're very socially adept kind of people so that when when we get evidence that we are being exploited or things aren't quite right, um, we'll often shift our own response to kind of a tit for tat, right? That, that if, if people have messed me around, then I'm going to mess them around. Because this very widespread belief that other, that are essential human nature, unless we learn and are very carefully keeping civilization in the front of our mind, our, our essential human nature will be to exploit other people uh, for our own benefit if we can So in a situation where we're exploitable, even though we intuitively want to trust other people and we recognize that in ourselves and we know that we are trustworthy, you know, we recognize that as our own intuitive thing. We believe that that, that we're unusual and that the other person will exploit us unless we watch them very carefully or protect ourselves proactively by making sure they can't exploit us. And so we set up this kind of vicious circle cycle of of distrust rather than the virtuous cycle of building a collaborative, trustworthy relationship. Um, yeah, so. Right. I, I'm thinking then it, that tends to be, and correct me if I'm misinterpreting this, but I, it tends to be then on an interpersonal level, like things that affect me personally. I go online and I see that there's an ad for some sort of amazing product and I instinctively sort of distrust that they're, they must be trying to scam me. That's too good a deal to be true. Uh, they've made it very flashy. So I assume that if I go onto that website, I'm going to get my data stolen or the product isn't going to exist and I'm going to waste $60 or, or something like that because it's very much one-on-one. But, and do I then sort of place that mistrust in others when it comes to things that do affect me also like for example climate change like healthcare like that other people don't care about it in a way that i do i i just do i assume that or i'm not saying should i assume that do i a regular person sort of assume that generally and how much of that is from what i actually experience do i actually see people doing this online and then believe it or do i see people doing it in real life and then believe it or is it more innate than that okay so it's the the evidence and anthropological work and modeling work suggests that that it is really innate to trust people that, it, that it's a, an evolved characteristic of our species. Mm-hmm. There's so much in your example for me to, to talk about. So <laughs> That's so true. I, I was all over the place there. I, in, I'm sorry. Yes. In, a, 
Well, here, let me just walk through <laughs> my reactions. So face to face, our inclination is to trust somebody. Unless we've got this overlay that we have to be really careful because everybody else will look out to to harm me if I don't if I'm not careful about things. Right. And so most of us, I mean, just from um, the research, most of us will go ahead and trust people the first time. And if the others respond to that trust with trust, then we get this wonderful building of, of trust. But if we sort of suppress that trust because, you know, everybody's untrustworthy, and um, we've been getting that message much more strongly lately. So we, we are much more likely to have that kind of fresh in our working memory. That kind of short circuits that trust connection. So that's interpersonal when we're face to face. The example you gave was online and in response to advertisement. And there you're actually correct to distrust because certainly marketing corporations are designed around the idea of selfishness and maximizing self-interest and in fact are legally required to do so. And so they will exploit you. That's kind of what they're all about. So distrusting that is a healthy reaction or being skeptical, at least, of, of those claims is is healthy, proper. Right. Um, and social media, for some reason, there is a lot of uh, sort of exploitative attempting to manipulate others' behavior I don't think it's the majority of people on social media, just like it's not the majority of people that are self-maximizing in these studies I talked about. Mm -hmm. But it's a minority and their influence is really exaggerated on yes. social media. They definitely have an outsized voice uh, compared to their number, I'm sure. Yeah. Right. So so being on more on the alert for harm to self on social media is, again, probably a good idea, self-protective idea. Although there are wonderful supportive relationships that happen on social media, you can also much more easily than in person be overtaken by somebody distrustworthy. Yeah. And you, you said that this this trend of us sort of defaulting to mistrust is exaggerated and increasing in recent years. And I'm thinking that maybe that's one of the reasons social media, for example, like you have access to all of your friends and people that you've known for years on social media. And, you know, they have Facebook accounts and they're Facebook friends with you. And all of a sudden they start sharing things that, you know, for a fact to be untrue, that and, and that is going to lessen your trust in that person. And, you know, maybe you have a discussion with that person about, well, do you really think that there's this secretive cabal, you know, running the whole world and doing these things and, and they will lie to you to convince you. And then you think, okay, they're even more untrustworthy. So maybe that snowballs. And I'm thinking maybe the other reason is COVID. And we've been separated from people for so long that we don't have those face-to-face -face interactions, which we, during which we default to trusting the person in which, with whom we're having that face-to-face -face conversation. I'm wondering if those two things make some sense to you. They, both of them make really very good sense to me that, that during the time of separation of COVID, whether it was 
short or long degraded social skills. Um, there's certainly evidence of that, that, that we're just less good at reading nonverbal cues and mirroring each other and those sorts of things since COVID. But the other thing is COVID itself was around for, well, it's still around, right? It's, so right. that was a good three-year period. So whether we uh, were isolating or distancing ourselves or not, people were kind of a threat to us. We didn't know if they'd been following public health guidelines or not. So, or we were one of the people that thought this was all just a scam anyway, and that they were going to be asking me to do something that was going to um, disadvantage my life in in some way. So, so there was a kind of built-in distrust of each other that happened during COVID, partly because of infection. And, right. and partly because of the politicized reaction um, to public health um, recommendations. Yeah. So, yes, I do think that's that's part of it. Well, and I was thinking about that, too, recently, this politicized reaction to a lot of things. I just saw a study that was done in the U.S., uh, economic realities, right? Uh, how do people perceive the economy? Obviously, the U.S. economy is extremely strong at the moment, as is the Canadian. We're on the upswing. We're coming back from what was a devastating time. But when they survey people and say, are you better off? A lot of them will say, no, I'm not. And they found that a lot of people would say, I'm making less money now than I was four or five years ago, even though it demonstrably is true. They have their tax returns or whatever. They were making $40,000 more and still thought that they were making less money than they had been. I, I'm wondering if that sort of, there's this innate desire to believe that the economy is terrible and that I'm worse off, despite the obvious evidence in your own life that you're not, you still answer that survey question in that way. Are those people just lying or can they have that level of cognitive dissonance in this distrust of, of the way things are, are going? Well, I, I think there's three things under underlying that. One, one is we have negativity bias. So we our attention gets drawn to the things that aren't good. You know, and that in some ways that's healthy because those are the things that need our attention to fix. Um, but so so we will notice the negative things more than the positive things. So that's that's number one. Um, number two is a, a a shifting baseline that you know, am I better off or not depends on what I think was happening in the past. we We don't have very good uh, roots to the the context. we it gets updated all the time. So if we believe things were better off than they really were in the past, then of course I'm not doing as well because my my just my numbers are wrong um, in terms of my comparison. Things that show up on the media, partly because of what the media now thinks their job is, and because it, at least in the Canadian parliamentary system, what our uh, opposition parties believe their job is, is to make people think that things are worse off than they are, kind of oversimplify it and 
and say, you know, look how terrible things are for you now. The availability heuristic, right? If, if, if the people around me just keep saying this, then that's in my mind all the time. So therefore, it must be right that, that I'm doing a terrible right. Yes, yes. And I, I think that comes from years of evidence of the economy driving election results. And so uh, what matters is not necessarily how well the economy is doing, but how well you can tell people it's doing or vice versa, that you can tell people it's dreadful. And uh, the more they believe that, the le- more likely they are willing to switch governments uh, and that sort of thing. Well, and in some ways, that's how society works. We we can't all know everything that we need to know to get by in the world. So we rely on experts, on people that do know these things. And we learned that as children, right? When we had to rely on the adults in our life to help us navigate the world. And so if an economist tells me the economy's bad, I'm more likely to believe it is because I'm not an economist. I have right. Yeah. Well, this kind of parallels for me this this sort of false idea of human nature that that we're untrustworthy as opposed to we're 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 really very generous and pro-social, is that we're not given the data very much. And so I just learned this week, for example, reading some news from environmental scientists who have been collecting data from all over the world, that in fact, the per capita carbon emissions that we are all producing uh, peaked in 2012. And it's been going down since then. Oh, wow. Um, I didn't know that. No. Um, I would have assumed that they'd been going up, but no. And most people do, because that's kind of what the information in our environment is. And I didn't have the global data to look at this. <laughs> and uh, and people who have it don't get picked up in the media as often as, you know, the dramatic, nefarious things uh, get picked up. Right. And I And I think that something like that, Right. The per capita carbon emissions globally, while quite interesting, and I find that, you know, sort of a positive and hopeful uh, stat that uh, we're reducing those overall, that data exists somewhere in the middle of the media ecosystem that just doesn't fit, right? Because it's either, it's got to be we have to let you know that something catastrophic is happening and we have to do something about it. And I imagine global carbon emissions overall have continued to increase at some small rate because the population has also increased, right? That's and exactly so, right. That's why it's happening. Yeah. Right. And so that ends up being, the, and I also saw some data recently that said that while the population is still increasing, a lot of the doomsaying that we had seen of, you know, this massive population explosion that was going to really uh, wipe all the resources from the earth and increase global warming and so on, that the rate of population increase is decreasing. But again, that's a, a hard thing to get across, I think, in science communication that the rate 
is decreasing, but the population is still increasing, but we're not going to hit this tipping point that we once thought we probably would. And that the global population is going to peak in the next couple of years, they think now, uh, as some countries are already seeing population shrink, have to bring in immigrants to make up the uh, difference and that sort of thing. All of these things, they, they exist in a middle ground. And I think media for a long time was very invested in this idea of balance. All right, we'll have a climate scientist on who comes on and tells us that the earth is warming at an unsustainable rate. And these are the dreadful outcomes that could happen down the line. But let's also give equal time to somebody who says that, you know, global warming is a hoax and all these people are just out to make money and David Suzuki has a big house or, or whatever the argument is, right? And I think over time, they had to learn that that kind of balance isn't real, that having one person when, right, the, to really balance it out, you'd have that one guy and then 130 climate scientists who all tell you the opposite, right? Yeah. So now it, there, are, there are some um, very amusing video clips where people have done that. Oh, have they? <laughs> like, like packed rooms with hundreds of people and then one guy saying. <laughs> right. <laughs> But I do think, and, and I mean, you mentioned expertise, right? Experts, that we defer to experts because that's the, we like you said, right? I'm not an economist. I don't know anything about that. I will trust an economist who tells me something. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think that's the, maybe the most visible increase in distrust that we see in the world is this distrust in expertise where I have a, an ingrained belief already in me of some kind, uh, you know, mask mandates are the new Third Reich or that vaccine mandates are actually vaccines are actually killing way more people than COVID did. I have this belief in me. And so when I see an expert who has worked in epidemiology their whole life and who is the spokesperson for it come on TV, I instinctively say that person's not trustworthy and I'm willing to mount a campaign against Dr. Teresa Tam, Dr. Anthony Fauci, whoever it might be, because I've already decided what the information is and I no longer trust the expert to tell me. Yeah, that's that's the growing distrust that we've got. Like we don't trust each other. We don't trust our institutions. We certainly don't trust elites, which it has a very amorphous definition that could just be anybody that knows anything about stuff or it could be a wealthy person or you know we we don't right. we we keep changing it and partly boy there's there's quite a lot of in there but part of it is inequality itself that that as inequality gets bigger and bigger the the people who are on the downside of inequality um, even if they're, um, you know, have a perfectly satisfying lifetime side, they don't have to be starving or, or whatever. They, they, the social comparison of these multimillionaires, who you can see they're getting rich by exploiting my labor or exploiting uh, other people, and so that sort of builds this distrust. But again, it's the proportion, the number of people who are doing it and the the um so that my example of the per capita emissions rate having peaked and the population growth rate having peaked and those 
your example, um, yeah. those things. What, what that, how that seems similar to me to the um, the trust issue, the the trustworthiness issue, is that it says most people are doing the right thing. That the the, the larger proportion of people really are reducing their carbon emissions. Right. Really, really are thinking about what's the carrying capacity of the world. I mean, I'm old, so we had the zero population growth movement. And when right. I was a young person, we, we talked very seriously about that. We figured out, you know, our replacement and how many kids could we have given our siblings and what they were doing reproductively, et cetera. Like that was a, yeah. that was a real thing. And that that's probably true of most of the people in the world. But there's always this little handful that's kind of taking advantage. They're doing the self-maximizing. And the the research uh, that I talked about that shows is that um, if we just let them have free reign and they get to just have as much as they want and everybody else's maximizing group interests, they'll they'll degrade the resources for everybody. They'll they'll do what we're experiencing is that we're continuing to damage the environment. We're continuing to build carbon emissions, et cetera. So there, there is this minority that we need to get our heads around. How do we help contain their influence on what's happening to us so that the majority of people who are doing the right thing um, don't uh, have their effort kind of wiped out? And there right. are some there are some ways to for us to think about and how to do that. Let's talk about some of those ways. I I mean, well, just uh, let me just finish yeah. this first. By distrusting everybody, we prevent the majority from working together to make that possible. Right. We individual action is not going to get us out of this problem. It's necessary but not sufficient. We we really do need a lot of collective effort, including cooperation across nations that are not worried about each other exploiting and trying to wipe each other off the map. So so this is really important to get our heads around. We can trust and we should trust and we need to trust the vast majority of people who are doing things right. Right. And and that is that's what I wanted to try to wrap my head around, which because my perception a lot of the time is that, yes, the people who are you know self-interested and will exploit everyone else's trust for their own self-interest and that are a, definitely a minority but a lot of them are the minority they have been elected into power in recent years all around the world right uh, we we've seen it in the US we've we see this movement happening in Canada now we've seen it in Europe all kinds of places South America where the most self-interested person who's willing to completely make things up and lie to the population of the country in order to get elected are actually succeeding. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that that's sort of a, a frightening prospect. So I'm wondering if you have some thoughts about, you know, how we can trust each other collectively, but reserve our skepticism for those who have proven to be untrustworthy. That's really one of the key issues. I think we have to get our heads around how to how to do this because you're exactly right that the something happens when people um, get a lot of resources of either status or power or money 
is that they become much more likely to be one of these self-interested uh, people. That that small minority tends to be to have much more power, much less attention to the needs of of other people and their, you know, uh, right. Which is reality. It's so, sort of so, a crazy so, catch twenty two, right? This idea that the people we elect to represent us in our own best interests are, by virtue of becoming elected, less likely to actually do that. It, it's yeah, yes. very strange. Not not all of them, but no. um, but so we we need to we need to have our skeptical radar turned up high when there's a power imbalance, for example. Mm-hmm. So so in increased situations of inequality, um, well let let's just talk about COP. I mean, because that gives us a, a annual UN meetings around the climate change issue where there's negotiations between countries, etc. Yeah. So some of those countries have much more power and wealth than some of those other countries. And those power, because of the way we've set things up, the ones with more power and more wealth really get a lot more influence of what happens to our resources. Mm-hmm. Um, even though there are more countries, even if you look at all of the votes in the COP or in UN or any of those things, the the numbers of countries that want to do more pro-social thing to make sure that everybody's okay, uh, get out voted, outweighed, vetoed by these very few over powerful countries. So we could figure out some way to have a more a numerically proportional decision making as opposed to having power and wealth skew our decision making so much right if they've got if you know and we see it in our own elections that that we we now decide who's going to win by the basis of how much money they've got to spend on advertising well that's a that's a terrible way to decide who's going to give us better policies Right. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, it, and you can see it at UN, you see it everywhere. So that we've set up a system that's going to give us a kind of perverse incentive. We we give more incentives to the minority that are going to not choose to make everybody all right. And we disadvantage the people who are the majority in, in terms of, of how we will share our world and breathable air and and all of those sorts of things. So, so somehow getting heads around decision-making systems in those kinds of collective problems might be one way that we could rebalance things. Right. Um, I think also trying to elevate the voices of the marginalized people, communities, really would make a difference. I remember seeing a movie, which was rather depressing, a documentary about a decade ago called The Island President. And it was the president of the Maldives who was going to the UN and who was saying, listen, my country is a country of islands and with sea level rising, it will be wiped off the map. It will no longer exist. My country will be gone. And just the level of 
absolute apathy of all the other countries around like, well, I mean, I guess you're first to go then kind of thing was mm-hmm. staggering. And it was really upsetting to to watch this guy just try to wage this one person war. He's got a seat at the UN. He's out there making every effort that he possibly can. And shortly after the documentary was filmed, he was deposed in a coup at home. And so, uh, you know, it, it really does sort of show that but it it was a great example of how a tiny country like that with few resources and very little influence on the world stage maintains its lack of influence on the world stage thanks to the you know much more powerful countries that are able to just turn and walk away and shrug and pay no attention right yeah yeah and and that's i mean that's the bind that we're all in really now at the moment we can also um, sort of fine-tune our trust-distrust mechanisms, right? That that knowing that people in power, well, and part of it is about social comparison, I think, and loss aversion, right. that that we know um, the, the um, it's a reasoning bias, loss aversion, that, that we um, pay much more attention and consider much more important losing things we've got than gaining something of equal value. Um, I mean, we're happy to gain something of equal value, but it doesn't have the kind of weight of, you know, this is really important. I can't have this happening that losses do. And inequality, I think, will, the people who have more will have that loss aversion much more strongly. So these people with more power, more wealth, whatever, they're going to fight harder to maintain the status quo as opposed to make the changes that we need to make in order to make all of us survivable. And so just knowing that, you know, you can feel a little compassion. Yeah, of course, that's working hard on you, but that's a reasoning bias, right? That's right. And because we've allowed inequality to get so big it really has exaggerated that because they can see you know i could be the guy from maltese if i proportional things and so i can't be having that so they'll act with whatever resources they've got they've got way more than everybody else so that's gonna you know put a monkey wrench in everything i think that's a super important point and one we'll get into a little later in psychology month the part inequality plays in affecting our motivation to tackle the climate crisis, and the idea that those who have more are going to be more fearful of losing what they have, while those who have less will be more fearful of what is coming. Thanks to Dr. Arbuthnot for joining me today on Mindful, and to you at home for listening, streaming, and downloading today's episode. If you're interested in the connection between psychology and climate change, please share Mindful with friends and colleagues and continue to tune in through the rest of February. I really wanted to kick the month off with Dr. Arbuthnot and the subject of trust, because it's a lens through which I want to view the rest of our discussions. People can, generally speaking, be trusted to do the right thing, and to support efforts that lift us as a collective over more immediate and selfish goals. Mindful is written, hosted, and published by me, Eric Bowman. Our producer is Jamie Montgomery, and our theme music is Avenues by David Taylor. 